welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Hello, and welcome to this very special edition of the Intuitive Insights podcast. This one has been specially recorded to celebrate Rail Safety Week 2021. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Ollie Glover, who is the Head of Safety, Health and Environment for the North and Eastern Route of Network Rail. Ollie Glover, welcome to this special episode of the Intuitive Insights podcast. We're doing for Rail Safety Week and um, I'm going to refer to my notes to make sure that I get your job title correct because it's quite a long one. Head of Safety, Health and Environment for the North and East route at Network Rail. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I'd like to start off, Ollie, in time-honoured fashion for the um, Intuitive Insights pod and ask you to tell us about your career to date, please. So I know I know some of it, um, and well, I kind of know all of it on paper, but what I love to hear is people's stories. And I'd like you to go back to the beginning in terms of the choices you've made and how ultimately you've got into the role that you're currently doing um, and tell us a bit more about what that role entails. Is there a typical day in the life of or week in the life of the head of safety, health and environment at Network Rail? Yeah. So I started on the railway in 2006 as a management trainee for Network Rail. So, uh, yes, I started working full time for Network Rail three days after graduating because I'd, I'd had enough of that. Um, rather bizarre and distance from reality student life. Um, I know academia is uh, academia is great for some people, but for me, I had my had my fill. Um, and uh, yes, was on the operations and customer services uh, training scheme for Network Rails based in the northwest. Uh, and I was I was pretty clear early on that I oper- you know railway operations and the, sort of the detail of that is something that I wanted to learn. So I spent most of my first year. Uh, going to signalling school, um, we all had to go to signalling school, and quite right too. Um, and uh, I, I, I trained and passed out as competent in a signal box on the edge of the Peak District, New Mill Central, and I worked that uh, for three or four months on the on the roster. Um, and I didn't. My first full job wasn't actually in operations, uh, but I got a unique opportunity uh, to go and work on the West Coast 2008 program so this was about preparing the industry for a major timetable change in december 2008 west coast mainline northwest west midlands the whole lot and we were a small team of six working for joe k tasked with uh, getting the industry ready and tying up the loose ends of west coast route mod um and and it was quite a lot of problem solving and troubleshooting uh, in that so it was, it was a really interesting first job because it it, it wasn't operational in the sense of dealing with the day-to-day it was more being separate from the day-to-day but working with people running the daily operation to try and get everything ready network rail train operators freight operators and plenty of others yeah i then did go into operations as as was my dream i suppose as a mobile ops manager for a short while and then a local operations manager uh looking after about six signal boxes and 35 signalers um in in bits of cheshire and and parts of crew uh, which was um, absolutely a baptism of fire. It's, I would still say by far it's the hardest job I've done because the people leadership elements, being on call and 
boy when I was on call did things go wrong. I, I was I had a reputation as a Joe No and always end up a couple of nights during my on call week at Warrington Power Box because something had gone wrong. Uh, but there's loads of safety responsibilities, um, learning to work with trade unions, uh, a great a great job. I then moved into a performance management, being performance manager for Network Rail Sussex, so responsible for performance improvement, working with train operators, delay attribution, quite a lot of commercial and relationship uh, things, which was quite different. Mm-hmm. And, and then moved to current ops manager, Network Rail Sussex, responsible for the control centre there, seasonal planning, electrical control rooms. I then, after about seven years in network rail, I thought, now's the time to see the other side of the fence, if I can put it that way, uh, because I think the, one of the problems with the way the industry is structured now is that unless you make the move between train operator and network rail, you will never properly see the other side of things and, and become a rounded industry person. And I was keen to become a rounded industry person. So I got the opportunity to go to London Midland, working for Tom Joyner as head of current operations so yeah start off with responsible for all aspects of their control including the fleet maintenance uh, information and train train service management aspects uh, and then after doing that for about 18 months um, I, I wanted to um, learn the uh, train crew aspect because uh, that's a critical element of running the railway uh, so I got the opportunity to become an area driver manager looking after a range of depots in the West Midlands a couple of hundred drivers um, each time and and then moved to Southern and GTR doing that job at the next level up so head of operations for Southern Metro where I was responsible for about 500 drivers and 40 managers and supervisors in in quite a quite an interesting time just as Southern was coming out of that very challenging industrial relations dispute and and this that job was partly about uh, winning the piece if I can put it that way Um, a bit of of pay negotiations trying to bring some stability to the operation um, work with both managers and and the drivers to um, get a bit of harmony and and joint working back in the place and I think after quite a few very intense operational jobs um, I was I was then keen to uh, take on some work which was perhaps a little more respectful of um, uh, my non-work existence and given me a bit more space to to do some of that so I moved to East West Rail Company uh, as an operations development manager um, looking at how we're going to operate that future railway between Oxford and Cambridge getting a lot of documentation operational principles together and finally so I feel it's been a bit of a long-winded answer uh, I, I returned to Network Rail uh, in in my current position I don't think that's a long-winded answer at all. I think you've managed to get it in a nutshell. That's kind of that's some career to date, and you've managed to do it to tell us in in such a, a fantastically precise and concise way. What um, what does occur to me as you've run through that and you've shared the job titles that you've done is that people who who are outside of the railway looking in might think that this industry is all about driving a train and selling tickets. Mm. And what you're just by by listing the job titles that you've had since you joined the industry, you are an absolute poster boy for how many different things that you can actually do in the railway that are completely different, but all very much knitted together and, and all very much kind of are what makes the railway run. Um, but you haven't had to drive a train or sell a ticket to do it. There's all of that support work that, that is done almost behind the scenes, isn't it, really? Yeah. 
But I want to take you just back just quickly to right to the beginning again to say that so as a as a graduate, when you're thinking about where do I want to go and work, which industry sector do I want to work in, why did you choose rail? So I, I started thinking that partly because I was a bit fed up with being a student, I started thinking quite hard about what I wanted to do afterwards, sort of halfway through in my second year. Uh, and I had a, at that point, I had a sort of long list of six six different things i mean two of them were rail related i, I was really keen to and that's going to sound terribly cliched and um uh, and sanctimonious which i hope it i hope it doesn't but i was i just i wanted to do something what that i thought was tangibly useful that could because because studying history whilst occasionally very interesting was i did not feel me right reading books and writing essays was tangibly useful to anybody else if i stopped doing it there would be no impact on anyone except me and and i found that challenging so i wanted to do something that was that was useful to other people that would deliver a benefit to society at large and where i could sort of get that sense of purpose sense of mission mm -hmm. and and i also did have a passion for railways um i would say i'm an enthusiast not a spotter yeah. i think a lot of people who know me would probably dispute uh, <laughs> that statement that i've made and that, that is, and that is their right that is their right um so so yes in the end that's that's what i wanted to do uh because it was something that i had a real interest in and something that i felt i could be do something useful yeah and this is um so often when i ask people that question uh just in you know in the day-to-day -day job that i do then it, it is it's that sense of purpose mm. that being part of the railway um, it really does bring you that. And I think that's where the passion comes from as well, because I've worked in several industry sectors in my career so far. I don't want to work in any other sector. I am absolutely wedded to this one, um, because one of the main reasons for that being the passion that people have in the rail industry for what they do. Um, and, you know, there clearly have been some really challenging times uh, recently but that passion has never has never gone away. It's kind of, no, we're here to do it. And yes, we're only doing it for a very small percentage of the population at the moment and over the last 15 months. But actually, we've had an even greater sense of purpose because the people that we are carrying are the people who are keeping the rest of the nation going in this terms of this key worker status. So... Um, I completely understand what you're saying. It's kind of, yes, absolutely, tangibly useful. And I love the comparison there in terms of writing history essays. My daughter's about to embark on a history degree in September, hopefully at Leeds. So I won't share that bit with her just yet. Maybe I'll wait till she's in her second year. But. Well, some people love it. You know, plenty of friends of mine, they, you know, they stayed in academia. They, you know, they've done PhDs. They, you know, you know, it's, it's, and it was great for a while. And, and other aspects of university, I definitely enjoyed. There's, there's no question about it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that's a whole different conversation. Um, one of the things that that we've noticed from the um, from our kind of um, exec search element of intuitive and what we do, we've worked on a few safety roles recently, safety director roles for clients. And one of the things that we've noticed is that we've moved away culturally, moved away from um, the kind of pristine high vis jacket and clipboard type of attitude to safety um, and a much more kind of um, team approach to safety and how we do things. Um, is that something that that you've recognised, Ollie, do you think, in the time that you've been in the rail industry or not? Has it changed? I think I think I have seen some change. Um, 
I think it is still quite traditional in lots of ways. I mean, the fact that I'm doing this job in some ways is a marker of that change because I don't, I don't on paper, I don't have a, a sort of formal safety or health background. I mean, yes, I've been involved in managing safety critical activity very much so, uh, but I'm not, I'm not a sort of regular appointment. Um, I think, I think there is an increasing focus on looking at just behaviours and human factors and how and psychology. Uh, but I think there needs to be a lot more of that, uh, whilst also retaining some of that sort of independent audit and assurance mm. um, role. But I think I think where safety, health and safety teams are most effective, is is where they manage to get themselves out from being perceived as inside a bunker, um, yeah. or or perhaps a a rocket launcher shooting rockets at other people in bunkers. It's more where they can build those relationships with the teams that they're there to support. Because the way I see my role and that of my team, there's a tension between, on the one hand, we're there to support, be a source of expertise, um, knowledge, to help help people solve problems, whether it's workforce safety, um, operational safety, level crossings. But we're also there to provide assurance and challenge and to be independent. and. And that's a, and getting that right is a challenge to be both supportive and helpful on the one hand and on the other impartial and challenging. Yeah, it, it is. It is difficult to get that right. But I think I think that is that is really what an effective uh, health and safety team should be doing yeah. both of those things. Yeah, I completely agree. And the other thing that I guess makes it more interesting um, to use that word is the fact that it's not just network rail employees, is it? Because mm. there are a huge number of contractors which are involved yep. in keeping the railway safe. Yeah. So culturally, how does that work? Do you know that balance that you've just described to kind of like, you know, this this impartiality, making sure it's being done right, being supportive at the same time, but also having that kind of, well, there are other parties involved here who are bringing their own style of behaviors culture values you know all those human factors how does how, how do you work with that yeah i mean i in terms of me personally i don't have that much to do with contractors um in the sense that that's mostly a different bit of network rail but but from what i have seen that's interesting because in in some in there is a, in some aspects there is evidence that some contractors they're more advanced in their safety culture and their processes than we are internally right. and that i know very well get might get shot for saying that. Um, so, so because you know sometimes they're smaller companies they can be more focused um on on their particular area of expertise so there's a lot we can learn from contractors but then there are also challenges in terms of bringing contract making sure contractors meet the same standards so it does very much depend on the individual contractor and the activity and the relationship but it's definitely not a question that one party always does everything better um i think and i think it, and i think the relationship needs to be approach from that point of view that nobody has all of the knowledge and and nobody gets everything right and that we can we can learn from each other and I, and actually i would say that that approach needs to be taken across the industry as a whole uh, thinking of roles i've done in the past there's there are a lot of interfaces whereby the system or the tradition encourages friction rather than mutual mutual challenge and learning and examples of that it's delay attribution and commercial processes between operators and network rail we all know we all know about that one you know the whole industrial relations thing between employer and trade unions that is often dominated by friction rather than um, mutual learning so i think 
that for me is a theme that goes across the whole industry. How do we how do we move more to mutual support, challenge and learning rather than friction and conflict? Yeah. I don't necessarily have the answer to that question. No. Um, yeah. I think my sense is that we, we made some progress towards that in the last 15 months because mm. certainly yeah. the conversations that I was having were using the word collaboration much more often and the collaboration or that that behaviour, that collaborative behaviour was being seen from all of the stakeholders across the industry. So not just kind of small pockets of, but actually everybody pulled together because the railway is exceptionally good in, in, in a crisis, as you know, as history shows us. And that kind of pulling together thing that happened was quite something to, to observe from, you know, from that outside perspective where people who worked in the operating community were saying to me that we're having some great conversations with the Department for Transport, with the trade unions. Um, they were all talking to each other. So irrespective of which owning group we sit under, we're actually all sharing best practice. We're all helping each other. It was absolutely amazing to see. I think that we've kind of started to move away from that again. Um, but I know that collaboration is a is a scoring part of the um of the new contracts isn't it or it certainly was part of the ermas anyway um i believe made up 25 percent of the um of the 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 standards set out in the ermas uh, for the tops in terms of collaboration but um I, but i don't know how that was measured so i'm yet to learn that although i have asked the question several times um another area i guess that um when as we as we're going through this massive period of, of change and transformation one of the areas that that i'm being told repeatedly is something that we we need to focus on much more is how we use technology in the rail industry um across the piece um in relation to safety ollie is there is there any kind of are, are there innovations that that you would like to see in terms of workforce safety, are there things that, that kind of you're aware of in other industry sectors or or are we okay? Because we are a very safe railway. Well, we're, def we're definitely not okay. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of sometimes fatal and very unpleasant um, track worker safety um, incidents over the last couple of years. So we're definitely not okay. Uh, not, you know, I'm not saying we're terrible, but we're not okay. There's lots more to do. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about things that I'm aware of that we're starting to look at. Um, so there's different terms for it, but we're currently looking at doing a trial of this concept called geofencing, um, which is where, let, let's say if you've got a, a, a six track um, railway, like on approach to Leeds, say, uh, and, you're only, and you're only blocking one or two tracks, you need to have an effective mechanism for making sure that people do not stray off the, um, the tracks that you've got block to trains onto ones that are open yeah. now we've got lots of established methods of doing that uh, some of which are effective and proven others have some challenges but one of the things that we're looking at is uh, getting people to wear devices that are programmed based on gps and that kind of geographical identifiers to give a vibration or an alarm if they're if they're moving too close towards the the area where if they go beyond that they'll be at risk so that's an example of something quite new that we're that we're looking at from a technology perspective um but we need to i mean we need to use technology a lot more the the real problem that we have in the rail industry in particularly here but it's not just here is that 
a lot of our, you know, all of our, most nearly all of our signaling is still non non digital. It, it still relies on semaphore signals, track circuits, axle counters, uh, lots of, and mostly it's very labour intensive, very manual. Mm. If we were to embrace digital signaling ETCS a lot more, then it makes it much more, it makes it much easier to integrate your track worker safety measures into that system. Mm. Uh, because ETCS is a whole, is a whole solution. A, you know, there, is, there are manuals and processes and proven ways of doing everything digitally rather than when you re-signal um, a semaphore railway in, into axle counters, there is nothing inherent about that signaling system that is linked to your need to patrol it and to have your track worker safety mm. guaranteed. Yes, you can try and build things into that, but you're having to come come up with manual systems um, that that take account of that signaling to try and keep people safe. Whereas really, if we were to think about everything as a whole in terms of the railway and how we run it and and specify how we do re-signaling and rolling stock procurement in the future, then you can take all of those things into account. Mm. We're obviously some way away from that, but ETCS is coming to the southern end of the East Coast mainline in the next few years. But in the meantime, yes, we need to we need to think harder about what technology is out there that can help us bridge that gap. And I think we definitely need to look at other industries a lot more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Another thing that we're trialing, actually, a good example of something that we are looking at that we have got from another industry is um, Thames Water uses this uh, uses this app, which um, is useful for loan workers in the sense that it sort of monitors where they are and, and sort of keeps an eye on them if, if contact is lost. But it's also used for asset inspections. You know, you, you, you log in with the app when you inspect the asset, you take photos of it, that then that then feeds a database which logs all the information about that um, uh, the asset. So one of the things that we're trialling with is with our level crossing managers um, to hope, make it a bit easier for them to do level crossing inspections and record them. Hmm. But it's also useful for, for loan workers in terms of having a much better way of keeping track of where someone is in case they do need help. Yeah. Some, I mean, I, I love walking in mountains and often by myself. And there was one time whereby I did get into a lot of difficulty, and I I I got into bad habits in terms of my preparation. And that, I mean, that's just an example. And you know, one of the things they say if you go walking in remote areas by yourself is leave your route with somebody before you go, mm. and as far as the communication allows, advise regularly where you've got to on that route. And I think for lone workers on the railway. We need to be adopting that same principle more than more than we are at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder whether I mean, as we're, as we're speaking today, we're kind of a, a week and a half after the publication of the long-awaited Williams Shapps white paper. Mm. Um, there was no major changes proposed for safety within that within that white paper, as I understand it. Um, but I wonder whether just listening to you and kind of playing it forward in my own head, whether actually having Great British Railways as one body, as that kind of bringing all of the, the industry together in relation to the future, what we're going to look like, how we're going to operate. Um, do you see that as, a, as something which is going to positively benefit the safety culture, Ollie, kind of having everything under one roof? I think that will help. Um, it won't fix it in and of itself, but I think I think it helps. I mean, for something for something that is that relies on a lot of planning, like the railway, I just think in general fewer interfaces better, um, fewer interfaces between the parts because 
you know, more interfaces leads to more paperwork, more meetings, more documentation, more focus on your individual bit, not the whole. So from that point of view, I think it, I think it will. But, but changing structures in and of itself does not fix things in the same way that technology in and of itself doesn't. You always need to be thinking about the people element. Um, and, and I think that's, that's probably the biggest challenge, I would say, in terms of improving safety is how do we get people, and I include myself in this, by the way, to, to think differently. Um, we're creatures of habit and routine, a lot of human beings. Yeah. Um, if we've been doing if we've been doing an activity day in day out for thirty years, we think we think we're just unquestionable experts in that. We think we're completely safe. I mean, driving cars is a great example of this. Um, most people just who who drive cars regularly, they just get into their car and drive. They'll you know they they'll have some music on. They won't. Most people do not keep both hands on the wheel. They, it is a completely chilled, relaxing experience. Whereas actually it's a safety critical activity. Yeah. And this is this applies to people who aren't on the railway, right? Just, just people who drive to the shops. Mm. And how do you when but when you've when you've had it ingrained in you that oh this is just something I do every day, I've never had an accident, I'm fine. How do you change the mindset to think, well, well actually this is a potentially dangerous activity mm. and I need to treat it like that and and have professional focus on it? that is a key question how do you get people to think differently about that and again i i don't i don't have all the answers or maybe i don't have any but they, yeah. i think those are the sorts of questions we need to be thinking about in terms of all aspects workforce safety passenger safety public safety because mm. it's a lot of it is similar things people getting into habits and thinking habitually about things not mm. taking take five that's one of the things we encourage in network rail to take five seconds to think about the task that you're at, about to do assess the risk and think how do I need to approach this in a way that will keep me and everyone else safe? Mm. And it's this kind of, I, I think it's a great example you've given about getting in the car and we just set off, don't we? And you can drive, you know, I can drive into Manchester, which is 27 miles away from my front door and sometimes not even remember how I got there. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, throughout the process of over the last 15 months or so, because I wouldn't I wouldn't be in my car for three weeks at a time, you know, until I next needed to go to the supermarket. Um, And that was quite interesting for me because I did actually get in the car a few times and have to think, right, where am I going? Am I facing the right direction? Do I need to turn around? Which route am I taking? That's quite unusual. You know, I've been driving, I don't want to add it up really, but over 30 years. So, and and I'm definitely in that habit of not thinking about it. But I did go, um, you know, hands up and full disclosure. I went on a speed awareness course a few years ago. And I remember the guy who was who was leading that session who said, if you are driving at 30 miles an hour, you are going at the same speed as a bullet coming out of a gun. Mm. Now, I'm sure there'll be somebody listening to this who will say, well, no, actually, Nina, it's not 30 miles an hour. It's whatever. But, the, you know, the, the, if you just take that with a, you know, as it's intended, you, you, when you're driving a car, it is a safety critical action that you're taking. And when I came back into the car after that speed awareness test, I would say at best for the next two weeks, I was thinking speeding bullet, right? What am I doing? Mirrors, am I, you know, am I doing everything? Mm. You don't, it doesn't stay continuously. 
even you know even when it should because you've got you know children in the back of the car or you you've obviously other people on the road so i think that's the other bit which is again it's coming back to the people element it's the human factors it's the behaviors how do we get that we have to keep repeating the message don't we not because people are not interested in it but because it doesn't stay front of mind because there's lots of other things occupying our heads i think so one of the one of the traditions on this podcast, Ollie, is that I get my fairy godmother wand out and I say, if I could give you three wishes for changes that you would like to see in the industry as we enter this period of, of transformation and, and what, what we need to be thinking about as we get to, if we ever get to the other side of it, what would your three wishes be? Well, I think probably some of them I've already hinted at. I, yeah. I think the first one is how can we think more of one rail industry rather than our own our own company, our own job. I, I really do think that's important because those the, the friction I mentioned earlier, those interfaces, they 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 don't I don't think that they generally I don't think they're helpful for focusing on on the customer. Yeah. Um at, or thinking strategically about the future of the industry yeah. um so that that would be that would be my first one and I, and I think one of the reasons why i say that is we as human beings we have this terrible habit or tendency of thinking that well if i was managing that it, i'd sort it all out it would be better and and uh, those of us who those of us who've managed both the, you know signaling and train crew know that actually when you get over there it isn't that easy as you think it is so we really we really need to resist that that human instinct to think oh well if i was doing it it would be great because yeah. it probably wouldn't be um the second one the second theme i would say is uh, more long-term strategic thinking um and i mean that in two broad senses first of all from a sort of leadership and managerial perspective and again um, you know none of us are innocent of this uh, but the, there's still a lot of leadership and management in the railway which is very much focused on what's going on today yeah. and doesn't take sufficient account of the fact that there are several layers of management below who are paid to manage today that that is their job yeah. um and i generally find that when they're empowered trained developed supported in doing that along with it then they do it quite well. Not in all cases, of course not. And of course, sometimes you need to jump in. But I, but I think, oh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, say this in a, in a non-controversial non manner. I, I think there are still too many very senior people in the railway who can't quite resist that temptation to want to go back and play trains as they once did. Yeah. And, I, and I'd encourage people to, to, to resist that. Mm. Give, give people the direction. Give your people the direction. Let them crack on. They, they might make a mistake. Um, but well, I don't know about other people, but I've done some of my best learning from making mistakes. Absolutely. Um, and um, and if you if you don't make those mistakes, then you won't learn. And if but if you don't make decisions because you're always thinking, oh, there's no point in making a decision because someone someone's going to call into the control and say, no, don't do that to the train service. No, 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 do this. Then it's disempowering for people, and they won't they won't make the decisions. Mm. Uh, I think the other the second part of that second answer to your question is also thinking long term about the future of the railway there's still too much sort of short-term thinking in terms of investment decisions yeah. um, and priorities 
So electrification is a hobby horse of mine that everyone's no doubt totally fed up with me wanging on about. There's so much focus on the capital cost. And, you know, given ones that have not gone well, like Great Western, you can understand some of that. So, you know, I do understand where government is thinking of. But if we're serious about decarbonisation, you know, we can we can have all the electric response vehicles as we want. We can put as many solar panels as we like on station routes. But all of that is like repainting the walls of your house whilst your house is burning if we don't get on and electrify and decarbonise. Yeah. It will not be easier or cheaper to do it in 10 years than getting started on it now. I use that as just one example that as just there's too much short term thinking mm-hmm. and not thinking about what do we need to do to our railway for sort of 10, 20 and 30 years time. Um, and, and, that, and that does come back to the previous point about um, managers. The more that senior managers spend tinkering with what's happening today and not thinking about the next control period um, or the next franchise or concession, whatever it is, mm. then the less we're going to get some of those things right. We're going to miss out on those opportunities yeah. to effect real strategic change. Mm. And I, I think actually I'll, I'm going to split that second one out. And that's that's I think that's your three things. <laughs> Enough, isn't it? I thought you were going to be cheeky and try to squeeze an extra one in, but all, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I think it makes perfect sense. And, and you know, from, from my position, whilst I'm, I'm very much part of the rail industry in, in my head and definitely in my heart, then we are, we're, we're kind of on the periphery in terms of being able to observe a lot of this stuff that's happening. Um, and I think you make some really good points. And I love your analogy about painting the house whilst it's burning. I think that's, uh, you know, that that paints a really vivid um, image in my head. You've mentioned um, a few times the kind of the importance of the people element in all of this. And um, I think that as we go through our careers, we um, we learn about leadership from people. And sometimes we learn how to do it. And other times we learn ways that we won't repeat and add to our own portfolio of skills. What do you think is really important, Ollie, from a leadership perspective for you? Yeah, I will probably repeat some of what I previously said, but I, I do think empowering people is really important. I do. If you know if someone, if some, if you've hired someone into a position and they've got a clear job description and remit, you you've got to let that person yeah. do that job. And of course, if they're not performing, then you need to look at why and work with them to help resolve that. Um, there's no question about that. But but a lot of people still fall into the trap of if someone's not doing a job very well, so like, oh, I'll just I'll, I'll just oh that that person's no good i'll just i'll just sort it out and do it for yeah. them. that that doesn't address the problem so i think empowerment is is really important i think i think humanity is a really important thing to bring to the workplace oh god that sounds like some tosh from linkedin doesn't it what do i mean by that i think i think being authentically genuine um is really important at work. I, I think I think there is still quite a lot of this in the railway that, pe- that people think there's this artificial divide between who you are at work and who you are as a wider person. Obviously, there have to be some boundaries at work, but but I think I think if people are going to be their best at work, they shouldn't be that different to how they are at home with their family, with their friends, with volunteering, whatever it is that they do, mm. because they'll be repressing something, and you'll lose you'll lose that that creativity that innovation, that genuine character mm. we bring to things. So yeah. I think it's an environment where people feel free to have a bit of humour, obviously appropriate humour, of course, mm. um, to be to be passionate about something, to have debates about things. I think that is, that is all to the good. Yeah. I think the third thing is, um, 
got to got to get people talking. Um, and you know, an example of this is you know, occasionally, you know, you meet, you hear of tales, and I'm not going to say whether this has ever been me, of people <laughs> nod off in meetings, and people are like, oh, that's so unprofessional, that's really bad. That mm. person should not have nodded off in a meeting. And, in, and of course, some of that is very true. People shouldn't nod off in meetings. Mm. But my, thing, my thought on that is, why did that person nod off in a meeting? Yes, there might be some lifestyle factors that they're not managing well. But what was it about that meeting that was so boring that enabled them to fall asleep? Why was it not interactive? Why were they not being brought into the conversation? Mm. Why was the presentation really, really drab? Um, and so if you're going to have meetings and you're going to make people work well together, make it interactive. Yeah. Make it more of a discussion. Ask them to bring agenda items to the table when there's a team meeting. Don't don't think that you as the head of department or manager have to dominate it all. Yeah. Get people involved. Get people talking. Get people thinking. Because I'll just give you a very brief example of this. I was asked to do a review as, uh, to a period brief of one kind or another. And I've been meaning to do it for ages and I kept forgetting. So just in my team meeting, I just, I just asked. I just ask people, um, the period brief that we get from X, what do you think? Uh, and and they just let, let the conversation flow. And the amount of insight I got from that, simply by asking people what they thought, I know this sounds really obvious and platitudinous, um, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be able to write a book about the scale of this insight, but I, I you know, I answered the question. Yeah. And that's better than I would have answered it if I just gave my view. Yeah, I think that's one of the um, one of the challenges around leadership is that quite often people feel like they need to have all the answers. Yeah, I fall victim of that myself. I think oh, I ought to know that instead of actually, you know, recognizing that I've got a team around me of people who know a lot, and in, in many cases know a lot more than I do in in different areas. So that kind of ability to say, actually, I, I don't have all the answers and I'd really appreciate your input, I think is a really valid point. Exactly. And none, none of us know everything about everything. No. I mean, we just don't. And even when we've got really strong conviction about something, and I'm I'm very guilty about this, you know, friends of, close friends of mine will say, oh, Ollie, you never, you never change your mind. You've got such a fixed, fixed viewpoint. I will change my mind if there's good evidence, but maybe I need to think more about how I can be receptive to that. And I can't remember which ancient philosopher it was. It might have been Socrates, who said, why is this is he who knows he does not know? And obviously, not just he, she, but she and they as well. Yes. But it's, it's still valid, you know, thousands of year, years later, because sometimes it is best to just say, I don't know the answer to this. Can you help me? Can you educate me? Mm. And quite often those, and, and again, I guess, you know, as we're doing this for Rail Safety Week, we can bring in back, that back to the safety culture. When people are out working on the front line kind of every day, there's so many ideas and innovations and thoughts that they're having because they're in it. And they, you know, think, well, it would be better if we did it like this. It would be safer if we did it like that. Um, but again, we, as leaders, we've got to have enough people who can say, so So, tell me, what's your experience? What's going on for you? Exactly. How can we change this? How can we make it better? Exactly. And I, I absolutely love your, um, your statement about authentically genuine, bringing your whole self to work, which is something that, you know, we, we are moving towards, although perhaps not at the pace that, that I would like us to be, but mm -hmm. that that vision for the future where everyone can debate, they can share their thoughts, they can do that in an environment where they know they're not going to get shot down because mm -hmm. there's genuinely no such thing as a bad idea. Um, so thank you for those.
Um, I'm going to bring, oh, as much as I don't want to, because I'm really enjoying our conversation, as I always do, but I'm going to bring the discussion to a close by asking you to share um, a quote for me, please. It's something that I always ask my guests, and I know the audience really appreciate hearing different quotes from different people. So do you have something, some words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with, Ollie? Well, I'll leave it to the audience to decide if it is wisdom or not. But um, and, it, and it's not a hugely creative quote either. It's one that anyone who's ever been on a leadership course will no doubt have heard. Uh, people think Gandhi said, be the change you want to see, but Gandhi didn't actually say that. It is an urban myth. But it is very much in line with what the sort of thing Gandhi would have said. And I still think it's valid, because I think on two levels. So the first thing is, if you really want to make a change happen that involves changing other people's minds, mm. you're not doing it yourself. You'll just be seen as a hypocrite or a virtue signaler. I can mm. use that phrase controversially. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, environmental and sustainable sustainability change is a really good example of this. There's no point hectoring to someone about how they, you know, drive their car for their weekly shop if you if you're if you're flying off for a city break every month. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't hold water. Yeah. The second aspect of that is particularly important for leadership. If if you're not exhibiting the culture, the attitude, the change that you're encouraging other people to do. Then no one's going to no one's going to take you seriously. Mm. Um, one of the most toxic leadership behaviours that I've seen is the whole uh, "don't don't do as I do, do as I say." Yes, there is no there is no better way of making your people either hate you or think you're a joke than yeah. if you do that. Uh, so yes, that would be that would be my my non real quote. I love it. Be the change you want to see. A perfect quote to uh, to end our conversation. My huge thanks for taking part in the Intuitive Insights podcast, Ollie, the special edition for Rail Safety Week. Um, I know that the audience is going to be really interested in uh, in the conversation we've just had because, I, as I say, I just I could carry on for quite a while yet. But I shall let you go. Um, thank you so much, and uh, and all the best to you. No, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. My huge thanks to Ollie. Um, it's always an interesting conversation and I could have gone on for a good bit longer than we did. I really hope that you enjoyed our special edition to celebrate Rail Safety Week 2021. Thank you.